Now, <laughs> anybody ever seen that show Nailed It? Yes. Yeah. If you haven't, what, what happens is they, they show these people like incredible food creations generally, like, like solar systems made of pies or I don't know, but it's like you know, crazy, incredibly good and beautiful. And so these people on the show have to recreate it. And so they, they see it and they're like, okay. Then so, they've, so then they, they try their best and it's usually very, very laughable, the outcome. And, you know, we're like, yeah, nailed it, nailed it. Whoa. It's like, how bad could you do it? I mean, some of them are like that bad. It's like, you know, it's supposed to be this beautiful mountain range and it looks like, you know, some Salvador Dali thing, you know. And it's like, I nailed it. We've had some cake adventures in our time for birthdays. We were supposed to have a Barbie cake. And I'm, will this embarrass you? Should I not do this? Okay. Just sometimes things happen, you know, in the moment. And so you had this mold that the Barbie bottom thing was, the dress thing was supposed to be in. And like it came out and it didn't come out. So it turned into a volcano. So. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes, sometimes we just can't do what needs to be done. Sometimes we're just not capable. We don't have the skill set. It happens a lot in a lot of different settings, but you just look at somebody, and again, I've been there myself countless times, tried to do something like, man, that just, I I can't do that. I can't. Well, maybe with some practice. No, no, I can't. I can't do that. So today, we are actually going to finish the Sermon on the Mount, which is a really difficult thing to say because how can you get to the end of this thing and feel like you did it justice? I don't. I surely don't. This, this is just, it's so, we, we could spend the rest of our time together till we see Jesus face to face in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and never plumb the depths of it. But we're going to finish it this morning by God's grace. And what we're going to see this morning is just some people who can't. They can't. And they are we, and we are they. Amen. So, <clears throat> for our public reading at the beginning of the message, we're going to do what we've done the last few weeks, which is read Matthew seven thirteen through 29. And our focus this morning is going to be verses 21 through 29. So if you would stand as we read the words of Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, and whose spirit inspired these words for us today. Enter. By the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, today we have sung and we have celebrated and we have partaken of your table. And now, God, in the 
light of this grave passage. Holy Spirit, please do your work. Convict us, draw us, give us assurance or don't. Help us to know the truth and help us adhere to it by the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I don't know that there is a scarier passage of Scripture than what we just read. And I say that up front not to be Johnny Raincloud, but seriously. If you can read that and not be challenged, shaken, moved, convicted, maybe you didn't hear it. Today's serious, y'all, and we, we are exegetical biblical people, which means that we work through the Bible on a systematic basis and we go through the Scripture. So Mother's Day text is what's next. It's, it's not a matter of, hey, let's... let's and again, there's nothing wrong with having a Mother's Day sermon. But we arrive at this passage today by the sovereignty and the providence of God. And I don't know why, but here we go, right? So we're going to start in verse 21 because that's the first verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now before we dig in here, we've got to remember where we've been in this Sermon on the Mount, both on a micro and a macro level. Micro is really tiny, macro is big. It's important here at the end of this message to review what the message as a whole has been about. This sermon is Jesus clearly differentiating between external false righteousness and true righteousness, which is internal and works itself out and is a gift of God Himself. And we see this clearly. The very first statement of the sermon, and we talked about this last week, but we need to see it again. The very first statement of the sermon was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So from the very outset, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 5 is Jesus making it clear, listen to me, that true blessedness, true happiness, yes, true righteousness is not something that we possess in and of ourselves. It is a gift of a holy God. We come with sin. We come with guilt and shame and we come completely empty and void of any good of our own. And that's true blessedness. And like crouching beggars, we entreat the goodness of God to save us and to give us what we do not have and cannot attain ourselves, which is righteousness. If we were on the Nailed It show, make yourself righteous. And our efforts would be cartoonish at best. And hellish at worst. The very core of the message of the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5.20 where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you want to know how much our righteousness is to exceed the self-righteous, outward-focused scribes and Pharisees, we look to Matthew 5.48 where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now piece all that together. You have nothing. You have to be more righteous than the most outwardly righteous people that there are. And as a matter of fact, the standard that you will be measured against on that last day is Perfection. Well, alrighty then. Anybody had a year, a month, a week, a day, an hour, a minute, where you felt like you were perfectly righteous in what you were doing, in what you were thinking, in what you were feeling, in what you were saying? I'll answer for you, you haven't. Or better yet, if you felt like you have, you haven't. Listen, we are fallen. 
We are sinful. Sin resides in our flesh. And sometimes we even like it. So this standard of perfection is a devastating indictment on every single one of us here this morning. Every single person that heard it come out of the mouth of Jesus. Every single person that has read this sermon or heard this sermon proclaimed before. It's devastating. And it's supposed to be. And then remember, Jesus also said that our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or we won't see the kingdom of heaven. That's the stakes that we're talking about. There are two paths, right? Heaven or hell. So the stakes are incredibly high. And we're supposed to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees who were the most outwardly upright people of their time. Nobody looked more righteous, looked more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. So this standard of perfection is not about an outward look. At least not alone. And Jesus would go on to elaborate on all of this through chapters 5, 6, and 7 until we reach the conclusion that we read in our public reading just a few moments ago. And in this closing, Jesus sets two options before us. The broad gate with its easy, heavily populated road that leads to destruction or the narrow gate with its hard, barely populated road that leads to life. And out of these two options, He commands His disciples to enter by the narrow gate. And then He warned them to beware of false prophets who are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing who will try to deceive them and will serve only themselves. And He said we could tell these wolves by their fruits. That was last week. And that brings us to today where we start in verse 21. And again, maybe the scariest, most terrible words in Scripture. Let me go back. That's not the right passage. That's supposed to be 721. Let me go back. There we go. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, that is earth shattering. Now, can you feel the gravity of that? In engaging the crowd around him, his disciples, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the mass of people, I don't know how many were there, but all that were there, Jesus, God in the flesh, puts Himself in the role of Lord and Judge. And He levels a crushing blow to so many, so many of those standing there. He says that not everyone who says to Him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what did He, he put Himself in the role of Judge. He put himself in the role of the one who would determine on the last day who was going where. Now that's a huge statement. He puts himself as the very Son of God and says that they are to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. He just flat out says there are going to be people who are standing before him, and I suppose that means in the final judgment, who think that they are going to heaven but they are not. Now let me say this up front. The last thing I want to do if you're saved is to make you think you're not saved. And the last thing I want to do if you're not saved is to make you think you're saved. So that's not what this is about. But Jesus is clearly saying there are many who will come before Him who think that they are saved. They're calling Jesus Lord. They show up at the bar, the judgment bar, not the drinking bar. They think that they are prepped and ready. They are saying that He is Master. That's what Lord means. But note that they say it twice. Lord, Lord. That's a sign of intimacy in the Hebrew language. If you say somebody's name twice back to back, that means that you know them intimately. So they come and they proclaim with their very salutation, I know you intimately, Master, Master, Lord, Lord. And there's several instances of this in Scriptures. Um, R.C. Sproul's message on this passage, actually he goes through all the times that the Scripture records somebody saying somebody's name twice. You need to look that up, it's really good. 
So these people show up and in their minds, in their minds, they are intimately acquainted with Jesus. Lord, Lord. But Jesus says that just because they say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean that they've got their ticket punched. Quite the opposite. He says that they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, He says it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of His Father who is in heaven. Now this is clearly saying that it's not what you say, but it's what you do that matters. Lip service is no service at all. Saying that Jesus is Lord does not mean that they did what He required. Just because you walked an aisle, just because you signed a piece of paper, just because you got wet in the water, just because your name is on the roll of church membership, Lord, Lord. You think you have the credentials. Well, let me tell you what. These people thought they had the credentials. What had they done? Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So here's what they did. On that day, many, and note many, will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, there's that intimate greeting again, did we not? Now stop right there. Here, people are not saying just that Jesus is master, they are getting into what they have done. So now Jesus said in verse 21 that it wasn't about what you say, but it's about what you do. So these folks here start telling what they did. Now let me just say this up front. It is not a good strategy to stand before the judge, this judge, Jesus, and start bragging about what you've done as a means to get into heaven. That's a bad strategy. That's a bad idea. But we just said it's about what you do, right? Yes and no. We'll address that as we move forward. What I want to make clear here is that if you come before Jesus on that final day and give Him a resume of your good works, your efforts, your deeds, listen to me, you will not be headed to heaven. Any movement that is about you. Any movement that is you word in trying to get into heaven is a wrong one. Remember we said that the Sermon on the Mount was about seeing our poverty, our need for a perfect righteousness that is unattainable in and of ourselves. But these folks will listen to them. They will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Listen, this sounds pretty good. Wouldn't you want that on your resume if you were trying to get into heaven? What an, I mean, it's impressive. Prophesying. That's speaking the very mind and words of God. Casting out demons. Well, that's for the super mature, right? Many mighty works. Check boxes, man. That's Yeah, heck, give me that. And they say that they did it in Jesus' name. Pretty impressive. But it's not to Jesus. Not to the one who determines who gets into heaven. He's not impressed. How do I know? Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now again, this is crushing. Can you imagine this? These guys have strutted into Jesus' presence just knowing that they know Him. They laid out their impressive resume and I would guess that they were expecting angels to stand up and applaud. Woo! That's our guy. But instead, Jesus, the Lord, the Master, the Judge declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I cannot fathom what this would be like. To hear Jesus say this to me, 
to anybody? To intimately associate yourself to the Lord, do all these works, and then for Him to pass the judgment of, I never knew you. Of course, the word know here is not saying that Jesus doesn't know who they are. Of course, He knows who they are. He created them. And He knows everything. The word know means to experientially know, to know intimately. Their intimate proclamation of Lord, Lord is returned by a denial of any intimacy on Jesus' part. We are intimate, close, personal friends. I don't know you. Woof. But it's not just, I don't know you, that's bad enough. It's also, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now there's no chance of getting to know Jesus at this point. There's no chance of reconciliation. It's exactly the opposite. They come in declaring intimate knowledge and great works and Jesus condemns them directly. Depart from me. Leave my presence. You can't be here. You are not righteous. Actually, you are workers of lawlessness. Prophesying? Casting out demons? Mighty works in Jesus' name? That's lawlessness? They did good stuff. In Jesus' name. That's that's good, right? What is lawlessness? 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Jesus calls them straight-faced, looking them in the eye, Sinners. Sin is lawlessness, therefore lawlessness is sin. These people are sinners. They're not saved. They're not righteous. They have never been redeemed and made righteous by the work of Christ in their place. They've done works. They've even done them in the name of Jesus. But they did it in ways that did not give God glory. They sinned even in their mighty deeds in Jesus' name. All sinners can do is sin. Sinners can't do righteous works because if they could, then they could earn their way into heaven. These people are sinners. They're workers of lawlessness. Everything they do is sin. And they are expelled from the presence of Jesus in that final day. So then what? How are we to respond to these jarring words? We're not at application yet. Don't go there. Don't go there in your head. Jesus tells us in verses 24 and 25, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So it wasn't about what these people had done, right? They had done things, we would even say wow-ish things. Wow, demons. But that didn't save them. So now Jesus says, well, it's about what you do. It's about what you do, not what you say. It's not about what you do. It's about what you do. That's where we've been so far. Let me just set the stage for you. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus is saying what's important is to hear his words and then to do them. So it's not about what you do, but rather it's about what you do. Is that double talk? Is that a contradiction? No, not at all. You see, Jesus is saying here that the key to being righteous is shown in what we do. And what we do is going to be what He said, what He has taught. Listen to me, please. Listen to me. True righteousness is life transformational. When we are given the gift of being right with God through the work of Jesus, then it changes our lives. Or we have not received that gift. 
If it doesn't change your life, you have not received anything. We may be trying to do good works. We may even come to church. We might even tithe. We might even say our prayers. But if it's based on self-effort, it's sin. You say, well, praying is sin? Yes. If it's not done by the Christ-empowered effort of grace, it's sin. The previous folks casting out demons, prophesying and doing all their mighty deeds did what they did for themselves and they did what they did by themselves. Like, well, how could they cast out demons? Listen, you have an adversary who is much more intelligent than you are. And if you don't think he knows how to play this game better than you, you are wrong. And if he can get somebody to march into hell casting out demons in Jesus' name, he will march them to hell casting out demons in Jesus' name. And let me ask you this. In this Sermon on the Mount, how many times did Jesus mention casting out demons? Here only. How many times did he talk about prophesying as a sign of the fruit of the Spirit? How many times did he call people to many mighty works in this sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not about your many mighty deeds, even doing them in the name of Jesus. These people had done it for themselves and by themselves. And Jesus says here, He was not in union with or in league with with them. Whatever they did, he wasn't a part of it. But here in verses 24 and 25, these people hear Jesus' words and then their life shows the fruit of the seed that he has implanted in them. His words, and I think here especially talking about the Sermon on the Mount, addressing true righteousness, his words point us to our need for him. His words point us away from our efforts to do God things our way and for our purposes. Poor in spirit, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not to be seen by the crowds, not to hear the applause of men. That is the life of Christ and His disciples. And that is true wisdom. Those who hear Jesus' words and do them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. If you're going to build a house, you have to have a firm, solid foundation to build on. The last thing you want for a house is for what it's sitting on to start moving or shifting. Have you ever had a house that had a bad foundation? And you notice the walls start cracking? Look around this building. You might see something. Something ain't right here, (laughs) y'all. I'm just telling you. Next time I trip on that floor back there, I'll remember... The last thing you want is for your foundation to move because it's going to move everything because all of the weight of the house rests on the foundation. Wise people do well to build on a good foundation. And Jesus says, hearing His Word and doing what He says makes you wise. Hearing His Word and doing what He says has you building on a solid foundation. And the floods and the rains and the winds come and beat on that house, but it stood solid. Why? Because it was built on a solid foundation. The external and even the topmost parts don't move because the foundation is solid. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Y'all know the song? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. I almost sang that this morning. Probably should have. Storms come. But the house, the structure, stands and holds together because it's built on the rock of Christ Jesus. If you are going to base your salvation, your works on anything, it has to be Jesus Christ. Anything else takes us to verses 26 and 27. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Here the other side is shown, this crowd. And it's the same crowd that was on the road leading to destruction, the busy road. This crowd hears Jesus' words, but they didn't do them. Which means that the life-giving, righteousness-producing words of Jesus found no root in their lives. So no root, no fruit. They heard the words, but they don't do them. Which means they weren't saved. I wonder if anybody walked away from that mountain. I believe that guy. Man, I, man that was awesome. I believe him. I'm, 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 I'm following this guy. A couple days later, they forgot all about what Jesus said. Or maybe a couple years later, they're still hand of the plow. But they're talking about what they're doing now. They're talking about, man, I tell you what, my life was changed that day. And let me tell you what I've done since then. No root, no fruit. We'll talk about that in Matthew 13, which I'm really excited about. They heard the words, but they don't do them. And they weren't saved. Listen to me. You can't be saved and not do God's will. You cannot be saved and not do God's will. Can't. Now am I saying perfectly all the time? No. I'm not saying that at all. But if you're not doing what Jesus said and taught, you are foolish and you are lost. And that's compared here with building a house on the sand. It's foolish, but who doesn't want a house on the beach, right? It sounds and looks good, but it's stupid. Beachfront, sure. On the beach, stupid. How many people walked away from hearing this amazing sermon that day and did not do what Jesus had taught in it? I figure it was a passel of them. That's an old word, y'all. Passel. And their spiritual houses would surely in the future fall when the rains and the floods and the winds came. And the fall of it was great. That means it was catastrophic. It was a total loss. A sentence to depart from Jesus and be cast into the outer darkness just like what we saw in the folks previously. Regardless of what they did do, it was all lawlessness. And that lawlessness led to total loss, total destruction, final judgment, away from the presence of God in eternal hell. And the big difference was what they did. Because what they did wasn't the will of God, regardless of what it looked like on the outside. Tragic and sobering, to be sure. So that's the end of the sermon, but we've got two more verses in Matthew 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus finished the sermon punctuating it with this dire warning. And the crowds were what? They were astonished. That means that they were struck with amazement. Have you ever been amazed by something? Like you see something, you hear something, and you're just blown away? Well, here the crowds, those gathered around to hear Jesus teach His disciples, were just blown away by what they heard. Why? Because it says He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. You see, the scribes would all pick sides and they would say what great teacher they agreed with or sided with. They would pick a rabbi and say, I I believe what he says. I follow what he teaches. Or no, 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 I like this guy over here. I like Piper. No, I like Charles Stanley. But over and over in this sermon, Jesus set Himself up as the authoritative word. You have heard that it was said, but I say. Remember that? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And it is Jesus who says, depart from me. That's authority. And that word authority is so important. It means power, right, might, and the liberty of doing As one pleases. When God revealed Himself to Moses and told Him His name, what did He say? 
the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, bounding in righteousness, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's authority. And Jesus is teaching with that authority. The Lord, the Master, does as He pleases. His is a ruling authority, teaching authority, authority to allow into heaven or cast into hell. And this amazed the crowds. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary teacher. No, this was God in the flesh. Now, did they realize that? Maybe some of them did. But we see the final outcome of the life of Jesus, right? Even His disciples abandoned Him at the crucifixion. So there was no great crowd pleading for the life of the Son of God. So it would seem that even those in this amazed crowd were simply in all of His bold words, not who He really was. But they were amazed nonetheless. Are we? Or are we saying, man, I'm just glad we're done with Sermon on the Mount. Daggone, I think we're ever going to... Are you in all of this magnificent, not my sermon... Jesus' sermon. That takes us to application. And I do feel woefully inadequate at this point. Three W's. www. No, no dot. Three W's for your application. Wonder, works, and walk. Wonder, works, and walk. Y'all can remember that, right? First application point is wonder. And I would just ask you, are you amazed at the Word of God? Now that's not the point of this text at all. It's not. But I think it's a good aside to stop and say, huh, when was the last time that I was amazed by the words of Jesus? I'm afraid we run the risk of them being old hat. Stuff we talk about on Sunday and Wednesday. I read them every day. Am I amazed by them? Am I in awe of the Word of God? The crowds were. The unsaved were. I've got to go to church this morning. (sighs) Such a burden. That guy's going to talk for an hour or more. All he does is read the Bible and make funny faces. Are you amazed at the Word of God? John 7, 46, the scribes and Pharisees sent some folks to bring Jesus back to them and they came back and answered, no one ever spoke like this man. They couldn't bring him back. He, he just talked and they were like, whoa. When they came to arrest him that night in the garden... He said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And they fell backwards. They got up and he said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. They fell backwards again. When's the last time you read something in your Bible and just went, wow. I'm I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you say wow if you're not wowed. But the application point is to approach the Word of God with wonder and amazement. God recorded words for us to read because God wants us to know Him. And you ain't no prize. Neither am I. And yet, He is jealous for me. Here's a good prayer for this. Psalm 119.18 Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Man, we need to pray that every time we open our Bibles or our Bible apps. God, please open my eyes that I might see the wonder of what you're saying in this word. Because it's wonderful. What a wonderful name it is, right? What a powerful name. What a beautiful name. Be amazed at the words of Jesus. Wonder.
this next one. Works. Now this is three-pronged, okay? This application point is three-pronged. First and foremost, hear me say this. You are not saved by your works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Lord, did we not? That is not biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is not you working and attaining to it. It's not. Never will be, never can be. What's the standard? The standard is perfection. And you're not going to attain to that. I don't care how many good works you try to do. I don't care what monastery you withdraw into. You're never going to attain it. Never going to get it, never going to get it, never going to get it. Never going to get it. Right, right. You still have a past. You can't take care of that yourself. So that's important. Under the application point of works, you cannot be saved by your works. Cannot. But I cast out demons in Jesus' name. That's not going to save you. I prophesied in the name of Jesus. That's not going to save you. I did many mighty works in the name of Jesus. That is not going to save you. That's prong one of works. Second prong is you cannot be saved and not do good works. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So I do have to work, not to save yourself, You are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. And if you know that and if it is implanted in you, good works will start happening. And you will want to conform yourself to the image of the Son of God and you will see what He did, how He reacted, how He responded, the wondrous words that He spoke, and that will start to change your life. And that change is seen through your works. Well, that guy says he's saved, but I'm telling you what, he sure don't look like it. You will know them by their fruits. So you're telling me i got to try harder to do better. Absolutely not. You rest in Christ. You abide in Christ. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I him, it is he who bears much fruit. And that fruit is your good works. So that leads us to the third prong of the work application point. You have got to work out your salvation. What's that mean? We talked about it last week in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now again, I said early on, if you're saved, the last thing I want to do is make you feel like you're not saved. But let me tell you what I do want to do. I want you to know. I want you to be unshakably sure that you're not going to show up in heaven before Jesus and hear Him say, depart from me, I never knew you. You are a worker of lawlessness. Me? Listen to me. You have to know for sure. How can I know for sure? It's a good question. And you work it out with fear and trembling. Let me tell you what, this has not been a fun week for me. And there's been a lot of things going on. We celebrated, we buried a dog, we haven't buried a dog yet, put him down last night. But that's not been the unfun part of it as much as wrestling with this text. Am I? Am I saved? God, am I? And let me tell you what, I was sitting in my chair at work in Mount Hope. And I started questioning, God, am I really saved? 
And man, the words of Scripture came to my mind. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I ask myself the question, have I confessed Christ with my mouth? I have. Do I believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead? I do. And you are saved. Can I see fruit in my life? Yes. Haltingly, faultingly. But I can. I can see Jesus Christ manifesting His life through me. And I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. So we work out our salvation with fear and much trembling. I don't want you to be afraid that you're not saved. But I want you to work this out going, Okay, God, I want to know for sure. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What's, What's the answer to the test question? Is Jesus Christ in me or not? Not what have I done. Not what did the church tell me to do. Not did I sign the right paper, take the right steps. The question you have to ask yourself this morning is, is Jesus Christ in me? Because that's the standard that you're going to be measured against once you get to heaven. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, To them God chose to make known the great... How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You got any hope for glory? It's because Christ is in you. So this is where we strike up just as I am and ask everybody to ask Jesus into their heart, right? No. Test yourself. Examine yourself. And ask yourself, is Jesus Christ in me? Is He? Have you placed your faith in Jesus, in the finished work of Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, to take the wrath of God, to stand in between God and us and absorb the wrath that should have been ours for our sins, my sins... And to know that He died, that He was buried, and that He came out of the grave three days later. Showed Himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. And then ascended into heaven where He is seated at the right hand of God. Very God of very God. And very man of very man. Interceding for His people. So that when the day comes, that day comes, the question is not what did you do? The question is what did Christ do through That's all that matters. Christ in you is the hope of glory. So wonder, work. Works is actually the The last application point that we finish with is walk. This is about a changed life. That's how you test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You see the life of Christ being manifest in you as He sanctifies you. If He has justified you at some point in the past, a punctiliar action where the gavel swung and God said, not guilty, righteous, worthy to be in my presence because of who Christ is, justified, then your walk will be a walk of sanctification where God is making you more and more and more and more like Jesus every day. And Philippians 1.6, which I didn't put on here. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That day. Listen to me, church. If you are in Christ, you will stand spotless and blameless before the throne of God. And you will not hear, I don't know you. You will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the promise of your Father. And He's only our Father because we are in the Son. 
And when we are in the sun, the sun is in us and we bear much fruit. Our walk will show it. Again, we will sin. We will fall. We will not hold to this perfectly. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And our walk looks a little more like Jesus every day. That's the proof. And if you don't see that proof, examine yourselves. Build your house on the solid rock of Christ Jesus. Not on your deadly doing. And when you build your house on the rock, your life will show the fruit of it. Let's pray. God, these are indeed sobering words, but they are also hopeful words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. God, I pray that now, in this place, this morning, that your Spirit would convict us and show us our need for Jesus. And that there would be the breath of your Spirit breathing new life into dead enemies so that they become resurrected friends. And for those of us who do know you, God, and I do, and I praise you that I do because it was your doing, your grace that reached out and breathed life into me, not because of anything that I did. If we know that, God, may we worship you and may we wonder at your saving grace today and every day. May our works show it. May our walk show it. Help us to be those who walk in the light of the grace of God. We thank you and ask you to do what only you can do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a doxology, a benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us. if you can. It might be a little while before the food's done, so be patient with us.